0: This evening we'll consider the potter and the clay looking at Romans chapter 9 verse 19 through to verse 33, the end of the chapter. In Romans chapter 9 the Apostle Paul has already raised two possible objections to his doctrine and then he has straight away answered those objections that he raised. First of all he said that he could wish himself accursed or separated from Christ instead of his Jewish countrymen who were separated despite Israel as a nation having been chosen by God to receive tremendous earthly blessings. That led to the first objection that might be raised by people which is if Israel has been rejected by God then God is not true to his promises that were given to Abraham and his seed. Now, in other words, what that means is, after all, how can Israel receive all those blessings from God and still be separated from God? The reply to that objection can be seen in verse 6, where Paul said, not as though the word of God have taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, there is an Israel that is strictly of the flesh, but also, a more to the point, there is an Israel, the Israel of God, which is spiritual and of which those who belong are heirs according to the promise of God, this spiritual Israel, this Israel of God. The thing to appreciate that not all of National Israel is spiritual Israel. Paul went on to explain that being a descendant of Abraham did not in itself qualify a person to receive spiritual blessings because that would have been the big boast or the big claim of the Jews of old and perhaps now we can trace our descent to Abraham. Therefore, we're children of God. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, yet it was Isaac and not Ishmael who was the child of promise. And then Isaac went on to have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob God loved, but Esau God hated even then it does not follow that if someone is a physical descendant of Abraham and his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, that he is an heir of God according to the promises given to Abraham. Not at all. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, and if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's a spiritual descent that matters. That takes us to the objection number two, which was raised and then answered by Paul. The objection raised is in verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, Is God unjust? Is he unfair? Paul immediately replied, God forbid, not at all. Then in verse 16, he went on to say, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. What that amounts to is that the reception of God's salvation blessings is in no way dependent upon us, or on what we have done, or or what we haven't done. But rather, salvation blessings are entirely, 100% dependent upon the mercy of God. Actually, it couldn't be clearer in John's Gospel. Sometimes when I get, I'm struggling in the epistles, I go back to the Gospels. They seem to be a lot easier to understand for me at any rate. The Apostle John, having already said that Jesus was not received by his own, by the Jews, went on to say in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And then John explains who these people are, who receive Jesus and believe on his name. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Born of God. That's what counts. Being born of God. Or being born again. Born of the Spirit. Can you see that those who receive Jesus and every spiritual blessing in him are born of God? That is, they are born again by the Holy Spirit, having been chosen for salvation in eternity. That recap sets the scene for this evening's consideration, which starts with yet another objection. Look at verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who have resisted his will? The objection raised by Paul follows on from what he had just said in verse 18. Therefore have he mercy, on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. That's quite a statement that God hardened sinners. Have a look at it for yourself again. We need to be clear about this. Uh, That verse, verse 18, who is doing the hardening in that verse? It's God. God is doing the hardening. And it is bound to raise an objection from people, including certain Christians, who would like to think that the hardening of hearts is something that only sinful people do to their own hearts. People most certainly do harden their hearts, without a doubt. They harden their hearts in their rebellion against God. But also, as can be seen in verse 18, God hardens hearts. And he hardens hearts in order that his purpose, according to election, might stand. In verse 17, Pharaoh was cited as an example of someone whose heart the Lord hardened. It's, it's interesting, when you read about Pharaoh in uh, the book of Exodus, sometimes you'll read about Pharaoh hardening his heart, but also you will read about the Lord hardening his heart. That hardening resulted in the power of God being seen when he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and also his name was declared throughout the earth. In other words, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart resulted in God being glorified when people saw his power and when his name was declared throughout the world, at the earth. With the details of that deliverance, when God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt... With those details being recorded in the Bible, God's power continues to be seen and his name continues to be declared throughout the earth. Therefore, as can be seen with Pharaoh, God hardens hearts for his glory. Likewise, God softens hearts for his glory. It depends on his purpose. In verse 19, the objection that is raised is along the lines of, if God is gracious to some and hardens others, and God is so in control, then how is it that such fault and blame are attached to sinners and such dreadful judgment is pronounced upon them when it is God who hardens them in the first place? How can that be right? What follows in the next two verses is Paul's response to what amounts to amounts as an audacious objection from the creature about the Creator. Look at verses twenty and twenty one. Nay man, nay but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it Why hast thou made me thus? Have not the pot of power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? First of all, there is nothing more sinfully ridiculous than for man to question the conduct of the all-knowing An infinitely wise God and to find fault with him and to put God on trial. It's completely absurd. It's sinfully absurd to do that. Note that Paul does not act as a self-appointed lawyer defending the judge of all the earth. God who has been put on trial by his sinful creatures and neither should we. Paul does not make excuses for God and neither should we. Paul simply says, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? In the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17, Jesus defined eternal life when he said, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. As such, The person who has everlasting life is someone who knows God and who knows enough about God to be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul in chapter 11 of Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who have known the mind of the Lord? or who, have been his counsellor. That really does put us in our place, doesn't it? Or it ought to, each one of us here, and, and, and stop us from saying, who is God to do this? And why does God do that? The person who knows God most certainly does not accuse God Rather he works out his own salvation with fear and with trembling. What we need to understand is that we all come from the same lump of clay as it were and God who is the supreme potter has every right to make from the one lump some vessels unto honour and other vessels unto dishonour in accordance with his infinite wisdom and his good pleasure and for his glory. Coming to verse 22 and 23, Paul provides an answer to the question, why does God allow sin to continue in the world? Maybe you've asked that same question, or maybe people have asked you that question. Why does God allow sin to flourish in the world? So let's have a look at verses 22 and 23. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured, with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. The first thing that needs to be appreciated is that Paul does not go into why there are people who are divinely appointed to be vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction or to everlasting punishment. Suffice to say yet again that before the creation of the world, God chose and predestined some to be saved and justified, and therefore it follows that he predestined others not to be saved, but to be damned that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And it is not for any of us to accuse the divine potter of being unfair. Again, let me just say what I've said in the past. Instead of accusing God of being unfair, you might like to wonder why God saves anybody. Given that there are some, indeed many in the world, who are the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, God endures them with great patience, with long-suffering, for a season, as they heap judgment upon themselves through their willful rebellion against him. And even now the wrath of God abides abides on all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. We saw that this morning. I think when I was talking about it this morning, I was probably thinking of this evening's sermon. I don't know. The wrath of God is upon all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, if there's someone in here who hasn't received Jesus and trusted in him for forgiveness, the wrath of God abides on you. And if that makes you shake in your shoes, then good, do something about it. Fall before the throne of God's grace and plead for mercy and God will hear that cry and he will save you by his grace. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in judgment and the long suffering of God gives way to his wrath and his power, Those two attributes, his wrath and his power, will be multiplied and they will be clearly seen when Jesus says to the vessels of wrath, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and God will be glorified. When you think about it, God has shown his wrath and his power even with respect to the vessels of honour. And I'm talking about the elect. Just consider 2,000 years ago at the cross, when the Lord Jesus Christ, he drunk from the cup of God's wrath, as it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and to lay the iniquity of the elect upon Jesus. And the power of God can be seen with the triumphal resurrection Of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the third day. Also God will make known. The riches of his glory. On the vessels of his mercy. The elect. When on the day of judgment. The righteous judge. The Lord Jesus Christ shall say to them. In the presence of everyone. Who has ever lived. Come ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom. Prepared for you. From the foundation of the world and the righteous shall go away into eternal life, and God will be glorified. Also, not only does God endure with long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to hell's destruction, he also endures with long-suffering the vessels of mercy, his elect not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance and faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will raise them up on the last day. And not one of them will be missing on that great day. And we can, we've can we looked at that, actually, in Peter's first epistle, chapter 5. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that they should all come to repentance, speaking to Christians. And one day is a thousand years with the Lord, a thousand years is one day. In other words, one day doesn't seem long to us, but a thousand years seems a long, long time to us. It's all the same thing with God. He is long-suffering, not willing that any of his elect should perish look at verse 24 now even us whom he have called not of the jews only but also of the gentiles up until now paul has shown that the promises of god concerning salvation were not made to all of israel but rather to some in accordance with god's purpose which he, un- which will undoubtedly and inevitably provoke some to accuse God of unfairness. However, now in verse 24, we see that the vessels of wrath, uh, sorry, the vessels of mercy, which God have before prepared unto glory, are not just the believing remnant from amongst the Jews, the Israelites, but also the elect of the the Gentiles' nations as well. No Jew or Gentile is by sinful nature a vessel of mercy unless he or she has been chosen and effectually called by God according to his eternal purpose in election and for his glory. Have you noticed how it keeps coming back to the glory of God? That is all important. Also verse 24, let's have a look at it again. Even us, whom he have called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That shows that when it comes to spiritual and eternal blessings, God does not choose nations. He chooses individuals, which together make up one holy nation. And so it is that in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, The Apostle John, who had a heavenly vision, said, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne. And unto the lamb. Look at verse 25 and 26. As he saith in, also in Osea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there, there shall they be called the children of the living God. I think it's time for yet another recap. First of all in chapter 9 Paul spoke of the calling of the elect Jews, the remnant, and he gave various historical examples of God saving or rejecting people according to his will and for his glory. Then in verse 24 Paul introduced Gentiles who were called as well as the Jews. Now in verse 25 and 26, Paul shows that the calling of the Gentiles was not some kind of afterthought. It's not as if God, it's not as if God thought, well, things aren't going that great with the Jews. I'd better start calling Gentiles in now. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way. It was expressly foretold in Prophecy. Verse 25 is a quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, and verse 26 here is a quote from Hosea, chapter 1 and verse 10. Hosea was a prophet of God about 600 BC, during a time when Israel had descended into spiritual and moral decay. In the context of the book of Hosea, These verses speak of a restoration of national Israel. However, in Romans chapter 9 here, verse 25 and verse 26, the interpretation is broadened by Paul, who was divinely inspired to do so and to speak of a calling of the Gentiles, that they too, the elect Gentiles, would become God's people, that they too would become children, of the living God. It was in Old Testament prophecy and that Old Testament prophecy is in accordance with God's eternal decree. The love of God and his mercy are broad enough to embrace Jews and Gentiles and the apostles' broadening of the meaning of these verses is perfectly in line with many other verses in the Old Testament such as Isaiah Chapter 49 and verse 6, couldn't be clearer there, where the Lord says, and clearly the Lord is speaking to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Let's have a look at verses 27, 28. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Paul's focus in these verses is once again on the Jews. Having spoken about the Gentiles, he's back with the Jews now, and by quoting the prophecy of Isaiah, he refers back to when God delivered a remnant of that nation from their enemies. Read about that all the way through the Old Testament. But that has a twofold fulfilment. A remnant of the Jews were delivered by God from their earthly enemies. That's very clear in the Bible. But also Paul is saying that of all the Jews, only a believing remnant will be eternally saved, not from their earthly enemies, but from sin, which is the biggest enemy of all. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there's no greater enemy than sin. As Calvin said concerning these verses, when the Lord resolved to deliver his people from the Babylonian captivity, his purpose was that this benefit of deliverance should come only to a very few of that vast multitude which might have been said to be the remnant of that destruction, when compared with the great number which he suffered to perish in exile. Now that temporal restoration was typical of the real renovation of the Church of God. Yea, it was only its commencement. What therefore happened then is to be now much more completely fulfilled as the very progress and completion of that deliverance. So the deliverance of the Jews from Babylonian captivity, you can read about it in the Old Testament, it really happened. It's historical fact, but it was a type. It pointed to another deliverance, a deliverance from sin, a spiritual deliverance of Jews and Gentiles. Let's have a look at verse 29. And Isaiah said before, Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodomer, and be made like unto Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah exemplify wickedness. Both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul were no illusions concerning the depravity of national Israel. If you can appreciate at least something of the depravity of the heart, not just Israel, but all of us, the heart and the enmity or the hostility of the carnal mind against God, you ought to have no problem understanding this doctrine about a remnant being chosen for salvation. You ought to have no problem understanding the doctrine about God choosing an elect people, having an elect people chosen for eternal salvation. A salvation that is achieved by another Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save his people from their sins. Finally, in verse 30, Paul said, What shall we say then? The last time Paul said that was in verse 14, when he anticipated an objection to his doctrine. However, here in verse 30, 30, it is used as an introduction to the conclusion, which is, reading from verse 30, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him, that's the stumbling stone, on him, shall not be ashamed. Earlier on in the chapter it was seen that salvation is entirely dependent upon God's mercy and his compassion, and it is not dependent upon anything that we do or that we do not do. Going back even further to chapter eight, it was seen that all who were saved from their sin are just and who are justified by God were predestined by God in eternity to be called and conformed to the image of his dear son. Consequently, even though Gentiles were, and still are, abandoned to every kind of wickedness, we saw that in chapter 1, goes some time back now, abandoned to every type of wickedness, some have nevertheless been made partakers of the righteousness of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him, God, that calleth. On the other hand, Jews who tried their level best to establish their own righteousness before God, failed. And they failed because they sought to justify themselves through obedience to the law, instead of simply trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as repentant sinners. As such, Israel stumbled at the stumbling stone whose name is Jesus. They rejected him and they crucified him. Praise God now and forevermore if you are trusting in Jesus as a repentant sinner because you are the recipient of God's mercy and his compassion. You are a vessel of honour. You are fitted unto everlasting life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will never be put to shame. And that's all because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sinless life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead. Far from being a stumbling stone to you, Jesus is the God of your salvation. He is the foundation and chief cornerstone of the spiritual house that he has placed you in as a lively stone, along with all the believing Jews and Gentiles throughout all ages. And to God be the glory. Amen.